Here's a little song Klaus wrote. You're required to sing each note. Own nothing. Be happy. In every life we need some items. When you rent them a drone provides them. Own nothing. Be happy. Own nothing. Be happy now. Own nothing. Take Soma. Own nothing. Take Soma. Own nothing. Be happy. Own nothing. Be happy. Ain't got no place to lay your head. The Fed coin wouldn't let you rent your bed. Own nothing. Be happy. Bill Gates declares a new mandate. He may have to litigate. Own nothing. Take Soma. Look at me. I rent my dishwasher. I'm happy. Own nothing. Be happy. I give you my implant serial number. When you're worried, call me. I send you Zoloft. Own nothing. Take Soma. Own nothing. Take Soma. Ain't got no phone. Ain't got no implant. Ain't got no life for metaverse to supplant. Well, own nothing. Be happy. Cause when you own stuff, you have agency. And that makes Big Brother very uneasy. So own nothing. Take Soma. Own nothing. Take Soma now. Own nothing. Be happy. Own nothing, trust Pfizer. Own nothing. Trust Pfizer. Own nothing, be happy. What's up, beautiful people? Welcome to the Barbarian Noetics Podcast, where we have planes flying directly over our heads and where we are committed to the elevation of the human spirit and to resisting this status quo.
Welcome back to the Barbarian Noetics Podcast, everybody. Thank you so much for joining. I appreciate you. To my patrons, you all are the thunderous roar of the airplanes flying directly over my head. I wouldn't have cheap, affordable rent without you. So thank you so much. Thank you for helping me to stay on the air and to afford groceries. I can really use your support. Uh, if you want to hop over to patreon.com noetics and help me to stay on the air. But I'm very happy that you have joined, and I appreciate you, all of my listeners. I love you guys. Sending lots of good energy, purple energy today is what I'm feeling. And coming at you from an overcast afternoon here in South Phoenix. And uh, when it's overcast, it's been overcast for two straight days, so it does impact my mental well-being. But I am, I'm, I'm rallying. Uh, I've, I'm doing push-ups. <laughs> I'm doing um, what is it? I'm doing planks, and I'm on my. I do have a uh, elliptical in my apartment, so I'm, I'm hopping on my elliptical. I'm keeping the blood flowing, and I'm feeling actually pretty good. I was able to catch a little bit of sun rays this morning. The sun came out for a tiny bit, so I'm incredibly excited for this week's episode, and I have some very exciting news to announce this week. So this week we're going to be diving into a concept that is fascinating to me and uh, admittedly it is a newer concept. I, I've, I feel I'm a bit late in the game to coming to this concept. It's something that is certainly intuitive to me and something I've thought about but I have not, I didn't quite realize that there was a whole philosophy behind it. What philosophy am I talking about? I'm talking about counter-economics, what is also referred to as agorism. So agoriz- agorism is a social philosophy that advocates creating a society in which all relations, pe- all relations between people are voluntary exchanges by means of counter-economics, engaging with aspects of nonviolent revolution. It was first proposed by American libertarian philosopher Samuel Edward Konkin III. And it's funny that they call him American because I believe he was born in Saskatchewan, but whatever. <laughs> So what is counter-economics? Really quick, I'm going to get into this deeper, but just as means of introduction. The counter-economy is the sum of all non-aggressive human action which is forbidden by the state. Boom! Look at that. The counter-economy is the sum of all non-aggressive human action which is forbidden by the state. Counter-economics is the study of the counter-economy and its practices. The counter-economy includes the free market, the black market, the quote, underground economy, all acts of civil and social disobedience, all acts of forbidden association, such as sexual, racial, or cross-religious, and anything else the state, at any place or time, chooses to prohibit, control, regulate, tax, or tariff. The counter-economy excludes all state-approved action, which is referred to as the white market, and it excludes what they call the red market, which is violence and theft not approved by the state. So this is a non-violent philosophy. And it was created by someone who considers himself a libertarian, but it certainly has a lot of anarchistic threads. And that is interesting to me. Um, The connection, the point, the juncture at which uh, anarchism actually kind of um, blends into what is referred to as libertarianism. And I'm exploring the concept of left libertarianism, which is a form of libertarianism that still uh, reps the worker, workers' rights, and still does believe in some degree of regulation to inform some degree of egalitarianism. 
um, and I'm assuming it would be on a voluntary basis, but you need you need you would need some sort of code of ethics or something like that to make sure that no one is left behind. That's what's really important to me is that no one is left behind. Every day I see people sleeping on the streets and it breaks my heart and there's no reason there's absolutely no reason why we tolerate that. It, 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 every time I see it, it breaks my heart fresh and every time I see it, I, I, I think this is not okay. It's not acceptable, you know? And I do what I can as one person. I have um, my friend who lives on the street who comes and collects cans every Monday because recycling happens on Tuesday. And um, today he walked up to my door and he had four quarters and he just wanted a sandwich. And I don't eat sandwiches, <laughs> but I was able to give him some pirate booty and a couple protein bars and some bananas. And I did not take his four quarters, obviously. But, you know, that shit is like, it's heart wrenching. And he has really bad glaucoma and, you know, he lives on the street and he's an old man. And it's just like, it's heartbreaking. So anyways, um, this is all to say that I'm... This is what we're about here at the Barbarian Noetics Podcast. We're about creating a more egalitarian world where people are not left behind to just sleep on the street like that and to ask, to have to walk up to people at people's door and ask for food. You know, that here we are in 2022. You know, I am in, in the low income neighborhood of the city, but I'm in a major American city. And there's just no reason why that sort of poverty is allowed to exist. Um, you know, and I'm not going to go into this tangent right now, but especially when uh, Joe Biden is sending a billion dollars to Ukraine to fund far right uh, nationalist, self-identified national socialists who believe that Russian children should be exterminated. That's who Joe Biden is sending a billion dollars of arms to. And then they're just getting blown up immediately as soon as they get there because the Russians aren't fucking dumb. They're a military peer. We're not just going in there and throwing our nuts around like we were able to do in Iraq. The Russian tech, they have really fucking good intelligence. I personally think they have better cybersecurity than we do. They know where the weapons are going and then they just blow them up. So literally just to virtue signal on the for his little ass his little buddies in the west in the g7 nations he's taking money that could go to help my friend have a place to sleep at night and instead is arming uh self-identified proud national socialists who want to exterminate the russian race so that's what's happening here in the good old us of a good times <laughs>
Alright everyone, so as I teased earlier, I have some very exciting news this week. Now, I'm going to be making a more official and thorough announcement and description of this event later this week, and I'm going to put it up on the RSS feed, so look out for that. But I wanted to give my listeners, my loyal listeners to the BMP, a heads up that there is going to be more content coming from the Barbarian Noetics podcast, and it's going to be video content. And so I'm incredibly excited that I'm going to be welcoming a co-host, fan favorite, Dr. Sylvie Salinger. You know her, you love her. She's been on several times, I think like five or six times already. Uh, she holds her D, uh, She has a PhD in philosophy and did her dissertation on artificial intelligence and its integration into our society. And so we are incredibly excited to be announcing. It's going to initially be a bi-weekly video show. It may eventually be every week, but it's going to be bi-weekly. We actually recorded our first episode today, and it's going to be called Barbarian Yak Fest. Barbarian Yak Fest. And there's going to be some really fun uh, um, logos to go with that as soon as we get it all together. But Barbarian Yak Fest, um, it's going to be a bi-weekly video show. I'm very, very excited. Uh, initially, I'm going to be putting it up on Rumble. Um, and I may be putting it up on Rockfin. I'm having a meeting uh, with Rockfin sometime this week to discuss being a creator on that platform. But it will definitely be up on Rumble. And as you, I will make sure you guys know exactly where to find it. And I will tell you exactly once the first episode goes up. But I wanted to make that little teaser announcement right now uh, for, for this week's show. Uh, new bi-weekly video program. Barbarian Yak Fest with fan favorite Dr. Sylvie Salinger. And it's going to be news and analysis from a philosopher-barbarian perspective. And so you might be asking, well, what does that mean? What is a philosopher-barbarian perspective? So I wanted to go over some core tenets of philosopher-barbarian thought. Number one, authenticity is paramount. Number two, resist transhumanism. Three, transcend the right-left dichotomy. And four, the rehabilitation of working-class solidarity. So, it's news analysis and mystic pontification for everyday people from a philosopher-barbarian perspective. Putting the human element back into the world, resisting the algorithm, taking back the algorithm, owning the means of algorithmic production. And so, very excited to be announcing this. I will let you guys know as soon as our first episode goes up on Rumble. And uh, you'll be able to support us in that way as well. So we're just branching out, expanding our tribe of philosopher barbarians. And I am entering the video space, everybody. So it's going to be me and Sylvie. We're going to have guests from time to time, all sorts of fun guests. We're going to be screen sharing stuff, screen sharing articles. It's going to be a lot of fun. So um, I can't wait to welcome everyone once that is up and running, and I wanted to give you guys a heads up. All right, Barbarian Yak Fest coming soon with Dr. Sylvie Salinger. Love Doves, it's 5.55 here on Saturday evening in South Phoenix. 
It's an auspicious time to record this segment. My neighbor's neuroatypical dog is doing his yelp bark in the background, so that provides a nice little challenge, a nice little consciousness challenge to me as I try to stay focused on this article. So I like this article, so I'm just going to read it. It comes from a website called 7thGenerationDesign.com and it approaches counter-economics from a perspective that I personally resonate with, a more ecological and long-sighted perspective. So, the name of the article, The Regenerative Agora, Counter-Economics for Stewards of the Future. How can we go about creating the new systems, business models, value systems, and infrastructure of a regenerative society when much of that work is arbitrarily outlawed or suppressed by the power systems that dominate our current culture? This post is for those of you interested in creating that world worth inheriting, whether or not permission to do so has been granted. A world in which seventh generation thinking has become so deeply integrated into daily life that it forms the very basis of culture, one rooted in connection to place and conscious of its role as a steward of the future, where socially and economically fulfilling lives are the default yield of that shared life way. That was a very well-crafted sentence. Just got to give some props to uh, seventhgenerationdesign.com. This vision represents a very substantive change from the world we currently inhabit. In order to lay the foundation for the ideas presented in this article, we necessarily begin with the following presupposition. Mainstream, state-sponsored, and enforced economic theory and practice has forced humanity as a whole onto a degenerative trajectory with respect to environmental integrity, social cohesion, and individual well-being. We are aware that such a statement can be taken to mean many things depending on any previously held ideological perspectives that you may hold. Please note, this article is not an attempt to change your mind, nor convince you that some of your previously held ideas are wrong or that the other side is out to get you. It is simply our best effort in this moment to illuminate another way one that is predicated upon peaceful interaction and respect for individual sovereignty in every sense of the word. Something that nearly all people are in favor of, no matter what perspective they may currently hold. This other way cannot be imposed upon others. It cannot be coerced, legislated, or regulated into existence. It can only arise through expanded consciousness, first in a single mind, then spreading virally across broad swaths, swathes, swathes? Why can I not pronounce that word right now? (laughs) Swaths. I think it's because they misspelled it, I think. Anyways. (laughs) Across broad swaths of human beings until rooted in a collectively held consciousness, what we will call culture for the purposes of this discussion. This other way is called counter-economics. Counter-economics is practiced in an ever-changing space called the Agora. Welcome to the Agora of Regeneration. Alright, what is counter-economics? Counter-economics is the name of a recent episode of the Barbarian Noetics podcast, which, which you can support at noetics, patreon.com slash noetics. 
Huh, all right. Well, that's, I appreciate the shout out. Wasn't expecting that. So what else is counter-economics? <clears throat> counter-economics is the theory and practice of all human action, neither accepted by the state nor involving any initiatory violence or threat of violence. And that's a quote by Samuel Edward Konkin III. Counter-economics can be most easily grasped when compared to what it is not, what we will call establishment economics. So establishment economics are acts of coercion initiatory violence or threat of violence and their economic consequences. Counter-economics is all non-coercive and free acts in general. Counter-economics exists and can be practiced outside the boundaries of state power, the state being that institution that has a legal monopoly on the use of force within a certain arbitrary geographic border. State power exists at the intersection of three things. Scope, the laws on the books, reach the boots on the ground, and will in the heart of the state agent. Counter-economic activity can be performed in the white, gray, or black market, for it is not defined by the legality of a thing or action, but instead the morality of it. And yeah, just a quick interjection, that is such a crucial distinction. The legality of a thing versus the morality of a thing. and. If there's one thing that breaks my heart, it's the corruption of the whole the whole uh, field of ethicism, like the fact that fucking Fauci's wife is like head of head ethicist for the NIH, and uh, you know they act in completely unethical ways. Anyway, so yeah, so the legality of a thing is different from the morality of a thing, and so I'll continue with the article. Counter economic activity encourages people to actively ignore or break laws when it does not involve initiating violence or coercion. It is necessary here to distinguish, distinguish between legal and moral. And a quote from MLK, one has not only a legal but a moral responsibility to obey just laws. Conversely, one has a moral responsibility to disobey unjust laws. Moral actions are understood to be those that are undertaken voluntarily, without coercion or threat of violence, and that do, do not harm other people. Legal actions may or may not be moral, just as moral actions may or may not be legal. There are countless examples of acts that are illegal yet entirely moral. For example, if one were to grow a certain restricted plant, you know the one, in their home garden, ingest it and experience the effects of that ingestion in a way one deems appropriate and that brings no harm to anyone else, this would be illegal in many places and act as grounds for the state to seize one's property and or liberty. This action, however, is entirely moral from the perspective that it was undertaken voluntarily, no one was forced to grow the plant or to ingest it, and did not harm any other people. In order to move towards building and living within a regenerative economy, there will necessarily be a fair amount of law-breaking required, as many of the moral actions aligned with the principles of regeneration are currently deemed illegal, i.e. building a natural home with earthen walls, or having a composting toilet, selling homemade food to your neighbors, or even harvesting rainwater in some places, etc. By engaging in counter-economics, we can begin to live and work in the regenerative economy without waiting for either the current system to fall 
or for top-down approval of our chosen regenerative lifeways. Indeed, much of what needs building to help soften our economic landing as we exit a growth imperative economy and enter energy descent will have to be built in the regenerative counter economy. For only here can we find a paradigm that is equipped to carry us through the turbulent years ahead and into a truly sustainable future and the liberty required to make such a paradigm manifest. Who said anything about turbulent years? The last couple years have been totally smooth sailing. I don't know what they're talking about. All right, continuing here with the article. This is a fairly long article, but I'm going to continue with it because I think it's instructive. All right. So what is the Agora? The word Agora describes a central public place in Greek city-states that was the center of economic, political, spiritual, and athletic life in the early city-states. People would go there to hear public announcements, perform military service, engage in commerce, and exchange ideas through conversation, essentially a city or town square at the heart of a particular urban settlement. The word agora acts as the root for two different verbs, both of which lend additional context to the centrality of the agora in city life at the time. Agorazo, I shop, and agurero, I speak in public. We bring the term agora forward here as a representation of an open market, a place where individuals can engage in voluntary interaction with one another, undiminished by violence or the threat of violence. The agora is the con in the context of counter-economics is a place of consciousness and represents all activity occurring beyond the limits of state power, which itself is defined by the amorphous boundaries of scope, reach, and will. The Agora is the only space available to us where we can build many of the elements, physical, social, cultural, and spiritual, of a truly sustainable future. So where is the Agora now? In order to know how to participate in the Agora of today, we have to know where it is. The edges of the Agora are not static, rather they are constantly shifting in response to the continual expansion of state power. Boo! Hiss hiss boo! Scope. The scope of government intervention into private life can be measured by the laws on the books. In our current context, context, this scope is practically without limit. It is necessary, therefore, to abandon the notion of finding the agora at the boundary of scope, because state power is currently expanding rapidly and claims dominion in one way or another over the vast majority of the globe and nearly all facets of human life. What a bummer. There was a time when looking for legal loopholes and then trusting the court system to uphold the law and protect individual freedoms was a semi-viable strategy, often depending on how much currency one could devote to the endeavor. This strategy employed today, however, is not likely to turn out well. The power-hungry virus of statism has been and will continue to supersede the law, thus the law likely provides no safe haven. Reach. It used to be that in order to be within reach of state power, one literally had to be within arm's length of a state agent. One needed to be within physical proximity to be arrested. Similarly, one needed to be within such physical proximity to engage in a vibrant agora. Physical proximity is far less important today than proximity to one's bank account when it comes to exercising control over an individual. 
If the state is able to freeze the funds in your bank account, it can effectively prevent participation in the Agora, just as physical detention once did. God damn, this article is turning out to be incredibly pertinent, considering just our very last episode with Dr. Sylvie Salinger um, was all about central bank digital currency, and the reason why they want to institute those is so they can, can freeze your funds uh, if you fail to comply or if you piss them off in any way. And that does effectively prevent participation in the Agora. So, goddamn. This is where alternative means of exchange and value transaction that exist outside the boundaries of state power become very important. Enter cryptocurrency, which is both seizure resistant and uncensorable, unlike the US dollar or any other modern fiat currency. Much more on this in regenerative economics, which is part five. And then will. Will is the X factor. Will to enforce an unjust law must exist in the heart of a state agent. Fortunately, it is actually very difficult to train a healthy human mind to persecute their neighbors. The will of the state agent is an important boundary to state power, yet it is difficult to recognize its limits. It is necessary to know the state agent well enough to get a sense for their level of pragmatism. There's a law regulation against that, but I don't enforce it. And or rule following because, quote, those are the rules, unquote. So what makes a regenerative agora? An open market by itself may or may not be regenerative. In the regenerative agora, human action taken to meet daily needs and create a high quality of life increases the capacity of an ecosystem's natural function to allow for greater life expression. Simply put, the world is made more resilient and abundant by participating in a free and excuse me, <laughs> in a free and open exchange of ideas, goods, and labor that is grounded by the three ethics of permaculture and its prime directive. Without this ethically grounded and principled approach to participating in the Agora, while interactions may still be far more peaceful than in an establishment economics context, they will not necessarily be regenerative. So, the prime directive of permaculture. The only ethical decision is to take responsibility for our own existence and that of our children. Make it now. Permaculture ethics. 1. Care of the earth. Provision for all life systems to continue and multiply. 2. Care of people. Provision for people to access those resources necessary for their own existence. And 3. Setting limits to population and consumption. By governing our own needs, we can set resources aside to reinvest towards the first two ethics. I just want to make a quick note that I don't know exactly what they're referring to here, but if I don't like uh, talk of population control, I, I did used to <clears throat> subscribe to a theory called the Voluntary Human Extinction Movement, which was the idea that everyone would voluntarily stop breeding and we could allow the human species to go extinct. But the last two years, as with many people, um, has really shaken me to my core and I don't have the same sureties that I used to have. And it, I don't like the idea of setting limits to population because it, you're, talking about, you're talking about controlling people's very, very personal intimate decisions on whether or not they're going to create children. 
and I just think that's very dangerous and it, it slides way too easily into eugenicism and it's really really horrifying to me how how like pervasive eugenicist thought still is even in 2022 it's under the surface and they don't talk about it but the predator class is steeped in eugenicism so i reject that i reject the fuck out of it actually and so for me right now where i'm at is i'm like i'm not touching population control <laughs> i don't know you know i don't have all the answers but i just don't think you can it's way too coercive sounding for me you can perhaps regulate consumption and also like uh, waste, like how much waste you produce. I'm just saying. Anyways, I'll continue now with the article. <laughs> the regenerative agora, the liminal space beyond the scope, reach, and will of the state in which autonomous free individuals interact and exchange with one another in a manner aligned with the prime directive and three ethics of permaculture lies at the heart of a seventh generation culture, one in which those alive today conduct themselves with the interests of the generations yet unborn at the forefront of their decision-making processes. The regenerative agora is the seventh generation principle made manifest. And the seventh generation principle is a seventh generation system creates socially and economically fulfilling lives for its inhabitants whose daily activity patterns regenerate who, whose daily activity patterns regenerate natural ecosystems and increase living capital year over year such that the economic and social value of natural ecosystems is always increasing and the valuing of those systems is transmitted intact across generations. Indeed, every aspect of the seventh generation principle can be seen taking place in the regenerative agora. A rich ecosystem provides the necessary raw materials, nutrients, climate conditions, and space required for its inhabitants to construct lives that are stable and abundant. The activities by which the inhabitants provide for their own existence yield byproducts, primary products or surpluses, that increase ecological integrity and capacity for life expression. Furthermore, and most importantly, the inhabitants value their way of life and the ecosystem that supports it, and place great importance on transferring this value system to each successive generation. Walking the Path – Decision-Making for Regenerative Agorists The regenerative agorist seeks to conduct themselves and their enterprise in ways that constantly move them and their enterprise towards greater levels of regenerative impact yield abundance and individual liberty and then there's a chart uh, down here so I will put the link in the description rather than try to describe the chart um, so I'm gonna scroll down a little bit here exchanging value in the Agora debt-backed fiat currency <clears throat> Man, I had like a physical reaction when I said that <laughs> debt-backed fiat currency issued by central banks is the currently dominant form of currency in our world we can qualitatively examine this crucial element of our society and economy using the regenerative-degenerative continuum detailed above. Every new dollar created, quote, steals value from all other currently existing dollars due to the fact that it is backed by debt and quite literally created from nothing. This debt is issued by the government as a promise to repay in the future with interest that repayment with interest is why our income is taxed, to pay down previously made promises plus their interest. 
God damn, this is pretty devastatingly put. <laughs> Man, I didn't expect this to get so deep so fast. Because every dollar is born as debt plus interest, there is never actually enough currency in existence to pay back all outstanding debts. Therefore, debts must grow exponentially or the system collapses on itself. Wow, that sounds really uh, sustainable. Really good system we've created here. Currency creation is completely monopolized by the Federal Reserve, or whatever a given country's central bank is called, i.e. no one else can mint currency because who wouldn't love to write checks against an account with nothing in it? The Federal Reserve, which is a private bank, not a government agency, holds government IOUs, which are bonds, a.k.a. promises, that are repaid with interest by our tax dollars, and that interest is paid out annually as a dividend to its owners, the big banks, each year. If any of this isn't familiar, we highly recommend reading the first post of this series, which is called Borrowing Without Intent to Repay, How Modern Fiat Currency Systems Concentrate Wealth by Design. And again, I'll have this very informative link in the description. I'll have it very well, I'll have it highlighted for you guys. So I recommend you, you check this shit out. I'm going to look into this organization a lot more. might even contact them for the podcast. Okay. Okay, so can we ever have a regenerative agora if our medium of exchange is so perversely weighted against regenerative process and abundant mindset? We don't think so. The dollar will collapse at some point, or there will be a great, quote, reset, <laughs> or some other crisis, either planned or exploited, will bring about currency destruction. For those of us wishing to participate in the regenerative agora, we would be wise to move as much of our economic lives as possible into other than financial realms to avoid the painful and potentially catastrophic effects of currency destruction. If you haven't already, we recommend taking six minutes to read Creating Resilient Wealth with the Eight Forms of Capital, where we detail the eight forms of capital model and a paradigm for creating true wealth that underpins everything we cover from this point onward in the Regenerative Economics series. All right, so there's just a little bit more here. Um, they get into cryptocurrency and stuff. So I think I'm actually going to take a break right here, and um, I'll continue reading, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pivot to another article. Um, but yes, damn, I'm kind of speechless a little bit. Anytime I get... Thinking about the fact that, that the dollar is really just a promissory note and the fact that there's never enough dollars in circulation to repay all the existing debt and the fact that debt has to expand exponentially or else the crisis, uh, the system completely collapses, it makes me feel some kind of way, folks. So I'm going to take a little break. Uh, the sun is going to be setting soon, so I'm going to be communing with nature over here, getting some photons into my psyche, into my eyes. And I will talk to you in a second. Much love, everybody. Peace.
Alright, I'm going to be playing a segment now from the Corbett Report, where James Corbett interviews Derek Bros specifically about counter-economics and agorism, and I thought it would be nice to hear some other voices besides my own, and also these two gentlemen are very eloquent in describing uh, what it is and how we can all participate in it, and how we are participating already in counter-economics, whether we realize it or not. Shout out to Ramis Gobson for turning me on to this. Uh, shout out Ramis, and he will be showing up on the podcast one of these days. So here we go, Corbett Report, James Corbett interviewing Derek Bros about counter-economics. What is agorism? And I know there's a lot of different ways to answer this, and Sam Konkin himself talked about the kind of problems of reducing this to a pithy definition, but let's talk about what agorism means to you. Absolutely. So, um, you know, again, I was really thankful and happy to see you covering this topic because I think that it's a really important strategy that hasn't been employed enough even in those by those who are more aware of a libertarian American individualist anarchist history and strategy it seems to be extremely underemployed even though many people are already practicing counter-economists without realizing it so basically the idea came from Konkin basically seeing that instead of trying to vote out the state or to you know use violent means and you know this the the phrases neither bullets nor ballots um, but instead of using those strategies, rather than working directly in the system or trying to attack it directly, we could compete with it by building something new. And this is where he comes up with the idea of counter-economics, doing activity that is essentially outside of the state's purview or that they you know, consider undesirable. And so that would be termed uh, black and gray markets. So uh, specifically, I'd say agorism is just the strategy, the employment of that strategy towards creating an agora, you know, this open marketplace where people can do business and all, you know, all, all different ways. There's really, uh, as Konkin said, you know, there's no one path towards liberty. We you know, have no idea what the gore is really going to look like, but this is the strategy to get there. And so you do that by uh, working in the counter economy, building counter institutions to the state. Um, basically, I feel like you evaluate, and I think it's important to focus this locally, decentralized, because um, Konkin wrote in the strategy, you know, the steps towards statism, towards getting to the free place that we would see pockets of agora start to be established around uh, the country, around the state. And I think that we already see that happening with, and it's it's happening more and more with things like Bitcoin and um, other tools, peer-to-peer -to -peer tools, as you talk a lot about. So, I mean, that's, ba that's the basics of it, though, is, you know, it's a strategy to use to work towards building a new, more free society without having to work within the state or try to fight them directly and instead focusing on solutions, localizing, decentralizing, and finding the need in the market, okay, where is the state doing something and find a way to do it better and to do it without force and without, you know, using theft, taxation. Well, then let's talk about counter-economics. You, you brought up the idea there that, uh, that this is something that uh, people are probably already engaged in even if they don't know it, but if you talk about black and gray markets, people are auto automatically going to think about, you know, drug dealing and gun running and whatever, and things that uh, some people probably have nothing to do with. And they're going to think, well, that's that's not what I'm interested in. I, I don't see what the point of that is. Uh, t let's talk a little bit about the counter economy and what it really entails. Okay, so yeah, the two things, of course, to define, important things to define are what the black and the gray market are, because as you said, people especially with you know black it's got this sort of negative connotation to it black market you're thinking like mobsters or something but <clears throat> in line with the non-aggression principle which most uh, libertarians you know anarchist thinking people understand the idea of non-aggression or even if you're not an anarchist just understand the idea of not aggressing on another human being and um, and you know self-defense things like that so in line with that 
black market and gray market activity wouldn't include murder or you know theft or these aggressive acts. That would Konkin term those to be red market activity. People contact us, we agree what we're going to work on, we agree for the amount, and we do business. And I'm able to provide money for myself, help another friend out, give these people a garden, and get them food going. And there's no reason to involve the government in that. And we totally we tell people we accept Bitcoin, we accept silver. You know, we'll do Federal Reserve notes if you choose. But you know, it's it's getting these ideas into practice where I don't need to get sit there and get them to read the New Libertarian Manifesto necessarily. I do recommend it for those who are interested in you know the root of these ideas. But you don't necessarily need to get people to understand those concepts to get them to understand the value in taking their money away from Uncle Sam and this idea of well, look, hey, if we start creating a new economy, they wouldn't even be involved with it. And the way I see it is for those who are choosing to build now. You know, I often tell people we have a couple of options. We can either sit still and just you know assume that the government's going to take care of it, right? Everything's going to be fine, and you know if, if things go bad, whether economic collapse or otherwise, we'll just go to the FEMA camps and they'll take care of us, and that'll be great. Or we can wait and we can go loot and riot, you know, and try to survive that and do what we can to survive. Or we can build now. We can start building now. We can start pulling ourselves out of the out of the you know status, the Federal Reserve economy, investing in counter economic activity. Um, you know, I can give more concrete examples of that, absolutely, and just you know, putting these ideas into practice in our own lives and encouraging them. And you know, I think that's probably the most, for me, it's it's the most important strategy we have right now. I've been focusing and learning more and more about it the past couple of years, and just trying to put it further into action and show people this is a real world strategy. This isn't something you just talk about. You know, you only. You can only talk about gorism for so long before it's like, okay, now you got to put your you know, money where your mouth is. You know, this strategy is one of action. So if you're still talking about it, it's like, what's there's a disconnect. So I, I think it's a beautiful strategy to really laying the groundwork towards a better future. I think you gesture to another another sort of leg on this stool that's important here, which is the idea of community. Because without community and that sense of purposeful community, I think this idea is not really impactful. It's not going to change anything. And I think that's part of the conscious part of conscious agorism is creating that community of of like-minded people who understand what the what they're doing and the nature of it i mean and i think you're right you don't have to participate in the counter economy in order to decentralize and localize and and participate in these you can pay with your visa card and and uh dutifully note everything to uh to pay the proper sales tax if you want sure i mean (laughs) i guess if you want to support the state that way yeah okay but the the important point is to get involved in those communities to start Mm -hmm. supporting other people and i think there's an interesting story to be told about the way community has shifted from the sort of human interaction of people in your neighborhood that used to be or in your town or whatever that used to be part of the core part of what it meant to be human and then of course the breaking apart of that during the industrial revolution the urbanization moving people into boxes in in cramped uh, neighborhoods where nobody knows each other and now we're trying to rediscover that i think through this technological process and trying to reconnect with human beings and i think that is really the essence of what this this freedom can actually bring about uh, bring about any other thoughts on on community and the importance of that before we wrap this up um, you know, I, I think that you that's a great point to make there and you can be an individual agorist out there doing your own action, but you're a lot stronger with other people of like mind and I, you know, I think that just starting to with just reading the book, with spreading those ideas, but really just talking to people around you that if you know people, other activists or other people who are just concerned in your community and really trying to have honest discussions about, well, you know, if we're sick of these things, what are we gonna do about it? You know, we both know we're not gonna take up arms. We both don't believe in the political system anymore. What you know, what options does that leave us? You know, when I write articles and I tell I tell people it's time to let go of the political system or you know, people you, you tell talk about the political campaign 
candidates and people say, well, what, what's the best option? What's the next best option? You know, if you don't like it, my candidate, then who are you going to vote for? We're stuck in this dichotomy to think that it's only voting or giving up, that there's no other option. So if you're not voting, then you're obviously not going to do anything. But that's false. We need to show people that there are other ways to build uh, you know, better, more free, enriching, positive lives. And I think that starts, again, with localizing. It starts with localizing, working on yourself. Uh, on the on the other level, the deeper level, making sure that you are as strong and you know empowered as you can be, so that you're not going to be manipulated by the state or by any outside influences, and then looking for other individuals who are on a similar path and coming together and deciding to put these ideas into action. Absolutely, the community. You know, I, I have uh, been blessed to be a part of the Houston Freethinkers community for the last four or five years, and. It's not specifically an Agoras community, but without a doubt, you know, those influences are there. We work a lot to be involved in the community, whether it's for urban farming or, you know, helping with local local businesses, raise money for good causes. Just diff There's different things you can do, but it's about, like you said, reestablishing these bonds with, uh, with our communities, whether they're global or whether the ones that are closest to us. But absolutely, there's going to come a point where all the Facebook friends in the world and tw Twitter followers in the world won't help you in your local community. I left my love in San Francisco with 10 pounds of endo I put it on the road with the work, told her hold that first We gon' cash out, get more Down from the jump, hand on the pump She my shotgun rider If a nigga won't funk, throw him in the trunk Burn him up past my lighter Smoking on killer straight casualties Me and weed like Mickey and Mallory A pimp nigga, bitch nigga, yeah I gotta be A broke bitch fuck with my allergies Woo! Damn pray God bless you These niggas and these hoes can't stress you A sack full of good, rolled in the wood Ain't no pressure I got money on my mind I throw bears on my line I police try to get me But they miss me every time I'm about to smoke and ride Pulling up a fine I police try to get me But they miss me every time I'm smoking and riding Smoking and riding Smoking and riding Gangsta gives and we cruising down these ghetto streets. And you know it. He checking out his traps, seeing how they be. And how you they know be. it. His cup full of pink, mine's full of brown. And you know that's us coming down the block when you hear that sound. Oh yeah. Right now I'm smoking the gills, but girl I'm thinking about you. Then I smoke some more, problem too. All right, Love Dove, so I'm going to be reading straight from the New Libertarian Manifesto, which was written in 1983 by Samuel Edward Konkin III, who really put agorism in a cohesive manner uh, out for people. And so it's got many different sections. I don't have time to read the whole thing. The first section is statism. The second section is agorism, our goal. And then I'm going to be reading from this third section, which is counter-economics, our means. So here we go. Having detailed our past and statist present and glimpsed a credible view of a far better society achievable with present understanding and technology, no change in human nature required, we come to the critical part of the manifesto. How do we get from here to there? The answer breaks naturally, or maybe unnaturally, into two parts. Without a state, a differentiation into micro, manipulation of an individual by himself and his environment, including the market, and the macro, manipulation of collectives, 
would be, at best, an interesting statistical exercise with some small reference to marketing agencies. Even so, a person with a highly sophisticated decency may wish to understand the social consequences of his or her acts, even if they harm no other. With a state tainting every act and befouling our minds with unearned guilt, it becomes extremely important to understand the social consequences of our acts. For example, if we fail to pay it tax and get away with it, who is hurt? Us? The state? Innocence? Libertarian analysis shows us that the state is responsible for any damage to innocence it alleges that the, quote, selfish tax evader has incurred, and the, quote, services the state, quote, provides us are, illusor are illusory. But even so, must there not be more than lonely resistance, cleverly concealed or dropping out? If a political party or revolutionary army is inappropriate and self-defeating for libertarian goals, what sort of collective action works? The answer is agorism. And I just want to take a quick pause to point out that this is actually on the anarchistlibrary.org. So it's called the New Libertarian Manifesto, but it has, I don't want people to be turned off necessarily if you're really like put off by libertarianism. Um, if you align more with anarchism, this is actually on the Anarchist Library because there's a lot of overlap there. And I'm just trying to blow out any of these labels and just look at what works. And I think that agorism is an absolute necessity for us. But this is not about me and my editorializing, so <laughs> I'll continue with the article now. Okay. The answer is agorism. It is possible, practical, and even profitable to entrepreneur large collections of humanity away from statist society to the agora. This is, in the deepest sense, true revolutionary activity and will be covered in the next chapter. To understand this macro answer, however, we, first, we must first outline the micro answer. The function of the pseudoscience of establishment economics, even more than making predictions for the ruling class, as did the imperial Roman augurs, is to mystify and confuse the ruled class as to where their wealth is going and how it is taken. An explanation of how people can keep their wealth and property safe from the state, then, is counter-establishment economics, or counter-economics for short. The actual practice of human actions that evade, avoid, and defy the state is counter-economic activity. But, in the same sloppy way that economics refers to both, the, both to the science and what it studies, counter-economics will undoubtedly be used. Since this writing is counter-economic theory itself, what will be referred to as counter-economics is the practice. Mapping and describing all or even a significantly useful part of counter-economics will require at least a full volume itself. Just enough will be sketched here to provide understanding for the rest of the manifesto. Going from an agorist society to a statist one should be uphill work, equivalent to a path of high negative entropy in physics. After all, once one is living in and understanding a well-run free society, why would one wish to return to systematic coercion, plunder, and anxiety? Spreading ignorance and irrationality among the knowledgeable and rational is difficult. Mystifying that which is already clearly understood is nearly impossible. The agorist society should be fairly stable relative to decadence, though highly open to improvement. 
Let us run backward in time, like running a film in reverse, from the agorist society to the present status society. What would we expect to see? Pockets of statism, mostly contiguous in territory, since the, states require, since the state requires regional monopolies, would first appear. The remaining victims are becoming more and more aware of the wonderful free world around them and evaporating from these pockets. Large syndicates of market protection agencies are containing the state by defending those who have signed up for protection insurance. Most importantly, those outside the statist pockets or sub-societies are enjoying an agorist society save for a higher cost of insurance premiums and some care as to where they travel. The agorists could coexist with status at this point, maintaining an isolationist foreign policy since the cost of invasion and liberation of statist sub-societies would be higher than immediate returns, unless the state launches an all-out last aggression. There is, however, no real reason to imagine the remaining victims will choose to remain oppressed when the libertarian alternative is so visible and accessible. The state's areas are like a super-saturated solution ready to precipitate anarchy. Run backward another step and we find the situation reversed. We find larger sectors of society under statism and smaller ones living as agorically as possible. However, there is one visible difference. The agorists need not be territorially contiguous. They can live anywhere, though they will tend to associate with their fellow agorists not only for social reinforcement but for ease and profitability of trade. It's also safer and more profitable to deal with more trustworthy customers and suppliers. The tendency is for greater association among more individuals, more agonist, agorist individuals, and for dissociation, dissociation with more statist elements. This tendency is not only theoretically strong, it already exists in embryonic practice today. Some easily defendable territories, perhaps in space or islands in the ocean or under the ocean, or big city, quote, ghettos, unquote, may be almost entirely agorist, where the state is impotent to crush them. Most agorists, though, will live within statist claimed areas. There will be a spectrum of the degree of agorism in most individuals, as there is today with a few benefiting from the state being highly statist, a few fully conscious of the agorist alternative and competent as living free to the hilt, and the rest in, in the middle with varying degrees of confusion. Finally, we step back to, to where there exist only a handful who understand agorism, the vast majority perceiving illusory gains from the existence of the state, or unable to perceive an alternative, and the statists themselves, the government apparatus and the class defined by receiving a net gain from the state's intervention in the market. This is a description of our present society. We are, quote, home, unquote. Before we reverse course and describe the path from statism to agorism, let us look around at our present society with our newly acquired agorist perception. Much as a traveler who returns home and sees things in a new light from what he or she has learned from foreign lands and ways of life, we may gain new insights on our present circumstances.
Besides a few enlightened new libertarians tolerated in the more liberal statist areas of the globe, quote, uh, in parentheses, toleration exists to the degree of libertarian contamination of statism, end of parentheses, we now perceive something else. Large numbers of people who are acting in an agorist manner with little understanding of any theory, but who are induced by material gain to evade, avoid, or defy the state. Surely they have potential. In the Soviet Union, a bastion of arch-statism and a nearly totally collapsed official economy, a giant black market provides the Russians, Armenian, Ukrainian, and others with everything from food to television repair to official papers and favors from the ruling class. As the Manchester Guardian Weekly reports, Burma is almost a total black market, with the government reduced to an army, police, and a few strutting politicians. In varying degrees, this is true of nearly all the second and third worlds. What of the quote first world? In the social democrat countries, the black market is smaller because the white market of legally accepted market transactions is larger, but the former is still quite prominent. Italy, for example, has a quote problem of a large part of its civil service, which works officially from 7am to 2pm working unofficially at various jobs the rest of the day to earn black money. The Netherlands has a large black market in housing because of the high reputation of this industry, the high regulation of this industry. Denmark has a tax evasion movement so large that those in it seduced to politics have formed the second largest party. <laughs> and these are only the grossest examples that the press has been able or willing to cover. Currency controls are evaded rampantly. In France, for example, everyone is assumed to have a large gold stash, and trips to Switzerland for more than touring and skiing are commonplace. To appreciate fully the extent of this counter-economic activity, one must view the relatively free, quote, capitalist economies. Let us look at the black and gray markets in North America and remember that this is the case of lowest activity in the world today. According to the American Internal Revenue Service, boo, at least 20 million people belong in the underground economy of tax evaders, and this is in 83, so it's more now, of tax evaders using cash or barter exchange to avoid detections of transactions. Millions keep money in gold or in foreign accounts to avoid the hidden taxation of inflation. Millions of, quote, illegal aliens, unquote, are, are employed, according to the INS, boo, Millions more deal or consume marijuana, cocaine, and other prescribed drugs, including lateral, tryptophan, anti-age drugs, and other forbidden medical material. And there are all the practitioners of victimless crimes. Besides drug use, there is prostitution, pornography, bootlegging, false identification papers, gambling, and prescribed sexual conduct between consenting adults. Regardless of reform movements to gain political acceptance of these acts, the populace has chosen to act now, and by so doing are creating a counter-economy. It doesn't stop here though. Since the 55 mile per hour speed limit was enacted federally in the US, most Americans have become counter-economic drivers. The trucking industry has developed CB communications to evade state enforcement of regulations. For independents who can make four runs at 75 miles per hour rather than three runs at 55 miles per hour, counter-economic driving is a question of survival. 
The ancient custom of smuggling thrives today, from boatloads of marijuana and foreign appliances with high tariffs and truckloads of people from less developed countries, to the tourists stashing a little extra in their luggage and not reporting it to customs agents. Nearly everyone engages in some sort of misrepresentation or misdirection on their tax forms, off-the-books payment for services, unreported trade with relatives, and illegal sexual positions with their mates. To some extent, then, everybody is a counter-economist, and this is predictable from libertarian theory. Nearly every aspect of human action has statist legislation prohibiting, regulating, or controlling it. These laws are so numerous that a, quote, libertarian party that prevented any new legislation and briskly repealed 10 or 20 laws a session would not have significantly repealed the state, let alone the mechanism itself, for millennia. Obviously, the state is unable to obtain enforcement of its edicts, yet the state continues. And if everyone is somewhat counter-economic, why hasn't the counter-economy overwhelmed the official economy, or the establishment economy? What exists everywhere on earth that allows the state to continue is the sanction of the victim. Every victim of statism has internalized the state to some degree. The IRS's annual proclamation that the income tax depends on voluntary compliance is ironically true. Should the taxpayer completely cut off the blood supply, the vampire state would helplessly perish, its unpaid police and army deserting almost immediately, defanging the monster. If everyone abandoned legal tender for gold and goods in contracts and other exchanges, it is doubtful that even taxation could sustain the modern state. This is where the state's control of education and the information media, either directly or through ruling class ownership, becomes crucial. In earlier days, the establishment priesthood served a function to sanctify the king and the aristocracy, to mystify the relations of oppression, and to induce guilt in evaders and resistors. The disestablishment of religion has put this burden on the new intellectual class, what the Russians called the intelligentsia. Some intellectuals, holding truth as their highest value, as did earlier dissenting theologians and clerics, do work at clarifying rather than mystifying, but they are dismissed or reviled and kept away from state and foundation-controlled income. Thus is the phenomenon of dissidence and revisionism created, and thus is the attitude of anti-intellectualism generated among the populace, who suspect or completely understand the function of the court intellectual. All right, everyone, you hanging in there? We have a little bit more of this section, so I am going to continue. I do think it's very important because this is kind of the origin of the official theory of uh, the whole idea of agorism and counter-economics. So I'm going to continue. Here we go. Note well how anarchist intellectuals are attacked and repressed under every state, and those arguing for an overthrow of the present ruling class, even if only to replace it with another, are suppressed. Those who propose changes that eliminate some beneficiaries of the state and add others are often lauded by the benefiting elements of the higher circles and attacked by the potential losers. A common characteristic of most hardened black marketeers is their guilt. They wish to quote make their bundle and return to the straight society. Bootleggers and hookers all long someday for re-acceptance in society even when they form a supportive, quote, sub-society of outcasts. Yet there have been exceptions to this phenomenon of longing for acceptance. 
the religious dissenting communities of the 1700s, the political utopian communities of the 1800s, and most recently the counterculture of the hippies and the new left. What they had was a conviction that their sub-society was superior to the rest of society. The fearful reaction they generated in the rest of society was the fear that they were correct. All of these examples of self-sustaining sub-societies failed for one overriding reason, ignorance of economics. No social binding, no matter how beautiful, can overcome the basic glue of society, the division of labor. The anti-market commune defies the only enforceable law, the law of nature. The basic organizational structure of society, above the family, is not the commune, or tribe, or extended tribe, or state, but the agora. No matter how many wish communism to work and devote themselves to it, it will fail. They can hold back agorism indefinitely by great effort, but when they let go, the flow, or invisible hand, or tides of history, or profit incentive, or doing what comes naturally, or spontaneity, will carry society inexorably closer to the pure agora. And I'm just going to hit a timeout right here. So I'm really trying to expand my mind and take in different viewpoints. And so I'm reading this unabridged. I do almost have like a reaction to that, that he thinks that the basic or he says the basic organizational structure of society above the family is not the commune. Um, I disagree. I don't think that I think that he's a very he's a little bit attached to his libertarian ideas. But it's interesting how they, they actually mend they meld quite well into anarchism. And I do think there's a place for the commune and certainly tribes. Societies have been organized by tribes forever. So I just wanted to hit a timeout right now and just say that I feel a little bit differently, you know, but I'm really trying to open my mind to people who think differently than me because that allows me to sharpen my own ideas and perspective. And I think that's really important for everyone to do. So, okay, time in. <laughs> Why is there such resistance to eventual happiness? Psychologists have been dealing with that since they began their embryonic science. We can at least give two broad answers when it comes to socioeconomic questions. Internalization of anti-principles, those that seem to be principles but are actually contrary to natural law, and the opposition of vested interests. Now we can see clearly what is needed to create a libertarian society. On the one hand, we need the education of the libertarian activists and the consciousness raising of counter-economists to libertarian understanding and mutual supportiveness. We are right, we are better, we are surviving in a moral, consistent way, and we are building a better society to benefit ourselves and others, our counter-economic encounter groups might affirm. Note well that libertarian activists who are not themselves full-practicing counter-economists are unlikely to be convincing. Quote, libertarian political candidates undercut everything they say of value by what they are doing. Some candidates have even held jobs in tax bureaus and defense departments. <laughs> On the other hand, we must defend ourselves against the vested interests or, at the very least, lower their oppression as much as possible. If we eschew reformist activity as counterproductive, how will we achieve that result? One way is to bring more and more people into the counter-economy and lower the plunder available to the state. But evasion isn't enough. How do we protect ourselves and even counterattack? 
Slowly but steadily, we, mo- we will move to the free society, turning more counter-economists onto libertarianism and more libertarians onto counter-economics, finally integrating theory and practice. The counter-economy will grow and spread to the next step we saw in our trip backward, with an ever-larger agorist sub-society embedded in the statist society. Some agorists may even condense into discernible districts and ghettos and predominate on islands or in space colonies. At this point, the question of protection and defense will become important. Using our agorist model, we see how the protection industry might might evolve. Firstly, why do people engage in counter-economics with no protection? The payoff for the risk they take is greater than their expected loss. This statement is true, of course, for all economic activity, but for counter-economics it requires special emphasis. The fundamental principle of counter-economics is to trade risk for profit. The higher the expected profit, the greater the risk taken. Note that if risk is lowered, a lot more would be attempted and accomplished, surely an indicator that a free society is wealthier than an unfree one. Risk may be lowered by increasing care, taking precautions, tightening security, and by trusting fewer persons of higher trustworthiness. The last indicates a high preference for dealing with fellow agorists and a strong economic incentive that binds an agorist subsociety and provides an incentive to recruit or support recruitment to that subsociety. Counter-economy entrepreneurs have an incentive to provide better security devices, places of concealment, instructions to aid evasion, and to screen potential customers and suppliers for other counter-economic entrepreneurs. And thus is the counter-economic protection industry born. As it grows, it may be insuring against, quote, bursts, lowering counter-economic risks further, and accelerating counter-economic growth. Then it may provide lookouts and guarded areas of safekeeping with alarm systems and high-tech concealment mechanisms. Guards may be provided against real criminals other than the state. Already, many residential, business, and even minority districts employ private patrols, having given up on the state's alleged protection of property. Along the way, the risk of contract violation between counter-economic traders will be lowered by arbitration. Then the protection agencies will start providing contract enforcement between agorists, although the greatest enforcer in the early stages will be the state, to which each one can betray the other. Yet that act would quickly result in one's expulsion from the subsociety, so an internal enforcement mechanism will be valued. In the final stages, counter-economist transactions with statists will be enforceable by the protection agencies and the agorists thus protected against the criminality of the state. At this point, we have reached the final step before the achievement of a libertarian society. Society is divided between large, inviolate agorist areas and rapidly shrinking statist sectors. We stand on the brink of revolution. All right, so that was directly from the New Libertarian Manifesto by Samuel Edward Konkin III. And, you know, I think as we move forward in our society and we see prices just skyrocketing, inflation going insane, uh, supply chain issues, all sorts of different kind of obstacles to 
achieving like a fluid exchange of supplies as like provided by the state it's going to become more and more imperative for all of us to really bind together to speak with our neighbors and to create these parallel structures these counter-economic structures and one thing i like about the new libertarian manifesto even though i do not agree with all of its ideas and precepts is that he's not a he, it's an examination of like the real nitty-gritty details of how this stuff would operate and i think his ideas about like how to how to provide protection and security are very important because obviously if you have a counter-economic system and then it's in competition with a statist system there needs to be a way to protect the agorists to protect the counter economists uh, from like infiltrators or people who would try to you know betray them or or sell them out or rat them out or whatever and so um, it is interesting his point how like solidarity would kind of be a natural progression because if you were someone who was ratting people out you would quickly be evicted from the group but the counter-revolutionary techniques of the state are very sophisticated and so it's certainly not something to just be scoffed at. Uh, we have to really consider these types of things and obviously we're not going to find all the solutions in one podcast episode nor will they be written in one manifesto but I appreciate the fact that he really digs into these ideas and isn't afraid to get into the weeds. Um, as for his kind of re repugnance to the idea of the commune, I just think that that's short-sighted and I think that uh, there's the idea of a commune is like the idea of a tribe of like um, no one is left behind and that people help one another and that a harm to one is a harm to all and I don't see that as counter uh, counter indicative with counter economics that was really awkwardly said I don't see that as not being able to work with counter economics or agorist theory in fact I see the ideas actually really like um, providing strength to one another so anyway I can talk about this more at later episodes as I kind of refine my own thoughts about it um, part of what I like about this podcast is that I'm kind of I, I'm I'm on this path of discovery with everyone who's listening, who's kind enough to join me on this journey. Like I don't have it all figured out for sure, but like I said, I'm just really trying to open up my mind, and I'm trying to be solution oriented. And I think it is very inspiring that so many of us are already participating in counter economics, whether we realize it or not, on a on a daily basis. So there is a lot of revolutionary potential there, and um, it's just all about uniting the working class, seeing beyond these perceived divisions, all the ridiculous things that we get upset about, the culture war items or like the politics, the red versus blue, the I'm a liberal, you're a conservative. It's just like we really need to leave all of these labels in the dust. We need to come together and we need to start really creating real solutions, you know. And I just imagine like in some sort of council where you had someone who was representing uh, the theory and, and interests of the commune and they could be in dialogue with someone who was like this die-hard libertarian who just thought that nothing good can come from communes um, it, honestly I really feel that when you break these things down really they they start to become almost semantic it's about what works and what doesn't work and it's about what suits our nature what suits our human nature and we are social beings we are we have evolved to bind together in tight-knit groups 
And so we have that, that's a major advantage that we have is that we're working with our very nature. Whereas the Great Reset, Fourth Industrial Revolution, transhumanist crowd is trying to recreate nature in its own image. And though they have a lot of money and resources and a lot of really sophisticated mind control manipulation tactics, I still think that that's a major weakness that we are working with human nature and they are actively working against human nature. They're trying to bend human nature to their will. So this is what we do at the BMP. We rep the human spirit, always, always stand up for the human spirit, the human nature, the human intuition. And uh, I honor you guys, all you lovely humans out there listening. Thank you so much. And uh, that's it and that's that. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the outro. Thank you so much for spending some time with me today. I appreciate you guys. I love you guys. I'm sending you lots of positive energy. Really feeling purple today, so I'm sending you guys purple purple vibes, purple flowers, purple orchids, uh, wherever you may be on the rabbit holes of space and time. So this outro, we're jumping down a rabbit hole, folks. And so I'm invoking the great Samuel L. Jackson from the equally great film Jurassic Park. Let's see, what do we got? Hold on to your butts. That's right, folks. Hold on to your butts. Let's hear it one more time. Because that's the theme for today. Hold on to your butts. That's right. Hold on to your butts. Because we're going to be reading uh, from a book that I was incredibly excited to find the PDF to. Because this book is almost impossible to find now. It's called Emerging Viruses. And it's written by a gentleman named Leonard Horowitz. And I'm going to be reading... This is an interview that the author Leonard had with a gentleman named Robert Strecker. And Robert Strecker was one of the original AIDS origin whistleblowers who was speaking earnestly and evidence-based about uh, the fact that he believes that AIDS was actually designed as a, a bioweapon designed in a lab. So this is an interview between Leonard Horowitz and Robert Strecker. 
Several weeks went by before we could coordinate our schedules for my telephone interview with Strecker. By this time, I had watched the Strecker memorandum and considered, as Acer had, Strecker's position that AIDS had been predicted, requested, created, and deployed. Strecker, I now knew, was a stocky, earnest-looking man in his late 40s or early 50s. His dark blonde hair glistened as he spoke. His wire-rimmed glasses and slightly graying temples portrayed a more mature, intelligent demeanor than what his boyish face disguised. He spoke quickly and easily, accompanied by an unmistakable Midwestern drawl. He appeared to me to be a once-all-American football hero type, whose athleticism and idealism was quickly dashed by the nature of medical education and academic politics. I began the interview by reading from a list of questions I had prepared for Robert to answer. And my meowser is at the door, so hold up just a second. Because she's going to keep meowing until I let her in. My meowser is very persistent when she wants to be let in, that's for damn sure. I'm coming, meow meow. All right. Meowser's inside. There's a bus going by. It's cloudy as fuck. Okay. I began the interview by reading from a list of questions I had prepared for Robert to answer. So, this is now a dialogue between Leonard and Robert Strecker. Len. Robert, first off, what convinced you that the AIDS virus was synthetically manufactured? Robert. What convinced us at the Strecker Group was the fact that this new agent had suddenly appeared out of nowhere, that the virus had characteristics of animal viruses more so than human viruses, and that the genetic structure of the AIDS virus actually looked like the viruses that appeared in animals that would not normally adapt themselves in humans. That could have occurred spontaneously, but not by the process that scientists have normally talked about. For instance, not by the virus running in primates, the highest order of mammals, including man, monkeys, and lemurs, because if you look at the genetic structure of the AIDS virus, what you find is that the codon choices, the specific sequence of three purine and pyrimidine bases in the viral RNA that codes for the production of a specific amino acid by the infected cell, included in the AIDS virus, are not existent in primate genes. Therefore, to assume that they simply mutated in order to adapt themselves into primates in the case of AIDS is vanishingly small, although still possible. What happened is that the virus either mutated in cattle and sheep and then was artificially adapted to humans by growing in human tissue cultures, which virologists do, virologists do, and in which they are easily manipulated in that manner. Or the virus was actually constructed in a laboratory by gene manipulation, which was available to scientists in the early 70s, although many of the techniques were not talked about until the mid-70s, because the biowarfare laboratories throughout the world have always been about five to ten years ahead of other laboratories working on all kinds of projects. In addition, a clearer reason, if you look at the appearance of the human retroviruses, the fact is that there were a host of these things that appeared all at the same time. So you have to explain not only the appearance of HIV-1, but also HIV-2, HTLV-1, NTLV-2, HTLV-4, HTLV-5, HTLV-6, ad nauseum. 
And so, to say that these things all spontaneously mutated at the same time in nature, and in the same direction, to infect human beings spontaneously and spread disease in worldwide epidemic proportions, in my opinion, is absurd compared to the known fact that scientists were working with exact progenitors of these viruses in their laboratories, which we can document. Leonard but what about the green monkey theory? The theory that a green monkey bit an African or someone had sex with an ape? Robert, that's just nonsense. Green monkeys are about the size of chickens. So the idea of a human having sex with a female monkey the size of a chicken is, of course, absurd. In addition, the theory that a transmission occurred through biting, of course, is always said to be close to impossible. If you look at the CDC and everybody else, they say that biting is not an easy way to spread these diseases, except in the case of the purported green monkey, which is suddenly the way it was spread. We don't believe that the viruses came from primates or from green monkeys. In addition, if you look at the whole theory that was published in Rolling Stone, and this was back in the 90s before Rolling Stone became a fucking infiltrated rag of the intelligence agency, that was my editorial, which accused Wistar Institute of spreading AIDS to Africa in the polio vaccines of the early 1960s. Wistar, of course, says that they have now reviewed all their stocks without finding any incriminating evidence for the allegation. Wistar Institute is one of the world's biological leaders in retrovirus, virus and cancer causation, cancer research, and is located in Philadelphia. And these viruses were originally known by their Philadelphia names. They were called NBC for New Bolton Center, which is also in Philadelphia. And if you look up the original AIDS virus, in our opinion, that goes back to cattle viruses that were called NBC, New Bolton Center 1, through about 14 or 16. And we identified HTLV1 and HTLV2 and HTLV3 in those first cultures that were adapted to human beings by growing them in human tissue culture. For many years, actually, you could simply call up New Bolton and say, give me some MBC-13, and they would send it to you. And then when AIDS appeared around 1978 or so, all of a sudden the MBC line all disappeared. You could no longer order them. Leonard, how interesting. Robert, yeah, it is interesting. And so we tracked MBC, I think it's MBC-13, back to Louisiana State Agriculture Farm, LSAF, Cow BFC-44. And what happens was, you see, they were looking at a lot of HTLV-1, which is like bovine leukemia virus, BLV. And this cow at the LSAF got, they thought, a BLV infection. She got huge lymph nodes in the neck, just like HLTVV. Sorry, there's a lot of acronyms here. And then she apparently conquered it because the lymph nodes went down. She got better after a mononuclear nucleosis-like disease, and she made lots and lots and lots of antibodies against this virus. Then about five or six years later, she started losing weight rapidly, developed diarrhea, and died with pneumonia. And they autopsied her, and of course she had no immune system left. And as far as we can tell, that was the original bovine visna virus isolate. Leonard, what year was that? Robert, 1969. And that virus was capable of wiping out T-cells selectively. It produced synctium, a mass of cell fluids containing many cell nuclei formed by the joining of originally separate cells as a result of infection or disease, in tissue culture, and it does everything that AIDS does. Leonard. Now, who was studying that? Robert. That was isolated from the LSAF outside New Orleans. 
Leonard. So Gallo wasn't the only one studying that virus. Robert. No, everybody was. These cultures were widely distributed. If you go back and look at the veterinary literature, they were looking at all the BLV, bovine leukemia virus lines, bovine synctium viruses, and bovine visna viruses. And all these things were being studied. Well, at this point, they were still essentially non-invasive because they were restricted to animals. But then what happened was in the late 60s and early 70s, they started growing these in human tissue. Leonard. Now, when you say they, can you be more specific in terms of the labs that you're familiar with that were doing this work? Robert. Yeah, well, virtually every lab in the world that was doing sophisticated lymphocyte studies, but particularly Gallo and company at the NIH. Actually, there were, a couple, there were only a few guys you know. Gallo, Montagnier, a couple guys that are dead, Baltimore, Temin, and a few others and a few veterinarians. Domachowski was interesting because he was the first one to show that you could basically adapt retroviruses to different mammalian species by growing them in the tissue cultures that you wanted them to go to. Now he's down in Texas. Miller in 1969 took bovine leukemia virus and injected it into chimpanzees and chimpanzees formed antibodies against the virus. So they concluded that these chimpanzees were immune. And so that was the decision for telling everybody that bovine viruses in human beings pose no threat, which is relatively true, there is a species barrier. Since the 1950s and even the 1940s, all these guys from Europe said that bovine viruses posed a threat to humans. So they began a whole program of mass extermination in, of cattle in Europe that carried BLV and other viruses. Now, if you look at the distribution of T-cell leukemia across the upper United States, from like Minnesota to Wisconsin, there's a huge incidence of T-cell leukemia in dairy farmers. And if you actually look at some of the studies down in France, they found that guys working in meatpacking plants had a greater incidence of T-cell leukemia as well. So there's all this evidence that T-cell leukemia is related to BLV, which it certainly is, and for sure, if you culture the virus in human tissue and adapt it, what you get is an HTLV1-like virus that thrives in humans. If you look at BVV, bovine visna virus, it's very closely related to HIV, but it's still not there. It's not the same as AIDS because, you, because what you have is bovine visna virus, a virus growing in cattle that's not adapted to humans yet. To adapt it to humans, you've got to grow it in human tissue as they were doing in those early 70s. And what they discovered was that it was a selective T-cell destroyer, just like the AIDS virus. All right, y'all, you still holding on to your butts? Hold on to your butt. Here, wait, we got you. Hang on just a second here. Let's do this. Hold on to your butts, because we ain't done yet. I want to read this one little segment about um, Fort Detrick. So you've heard me mention Fort Detrick a lot. Um, I just wanted to give you guys more information about it. Now, this is uh, from an earlier portion of the same book, Emerging Viruses. And this book was written in 1996. So all these statistics that I'm going to give you right now are you can multiply them by like three or four or five because it's always exponentially exploding the shit. And all this is from 1996, we're now in 2022, which is 26 years later. So 
Anyways, <clears throat> this is too interesting to not include, so I'm gonna throw it into this outro since we're, we're on this. We've already gone down this rabbit hole. We're holding on to our butts already, so here we go. Fort Detrick is the nation's and likely the world's largest and most sophisticated biological weapons testing center. The facility, and this is in 1996, employed some 300 scientists, including 140 microbiologists, 40 of whom had PhDs. 150 specialists in other disciplines ranging from plant pathology to mathematical statistics and between 700 and 1,000 supporting staff. The operation occupied some 1,230 acres of federally owned land upon which 450 structures were maintained. All right, this part blows my fucking mind. It produced annually some, and this is in 96, remember, so it's like way more now. It produced annually some 900,000 mice, 50,000 guinea pigs, 2,500 rabbits, and 4,000 monkeys. I mean, 4,000 monkeys. Like, holy shit, dude. That's a lot of monkeys, man. That's a lot of monkeys. And all these, these poor monkeys. It breaks my heart. I don't like it. I don't like the animal cruelty at all. I don't think that humans are that special that we we can just fuck around you know with other animals like and especially in this instance when it's biological weaponry it's not even they're creating illnesses in order to to find cures it's it's really immoral and I think on an energetic spiritual level it's really like these types of operations really bring the vibe down that's for sure all right continuing there was also a large corral area for holding larger animals such as horses, cattle, and sheep. The cost of running Dietrich's biological weapons research alone was reported as $21.9 million in 1969. <laughs> Among the academic festivities planned for Dietrich's 25th anniversary was an international symposium dealing with the entry and control of foreign nucleic acid into cells during the process of human and animal immunosuppression. The frank threat of manipulating nature's own genetic blueprint for life and celebrating its possibilities brought sharp protests from leading scientists. Despite their harshest warnings, on April 4 and 5, 1969, Dietrich played host to the American Institute of Biological Scientists sponsored event, AIBS. The AIBS involvement additionally outraged conscientious objectors. A boycott ensued that was believed to be unparalleled in the stormy history of relationships between the military and the scientific community, Science News reported. At least 16 scientists refused to give papers at a Dietrich-sponsored symposium on nucleic acids as part of a half-spontaneous, half-organized protest against the use of science for destructive military purposes. Some scientists rejected Dietrich's invitation shortly after it was received. Others accepted the invitation, but then, after receiving letters and calls from their colleagues, decided to withdraw. Four scientists even withdrew after the final program had been printed, thus forcing Dietrich to rearrange the program at the last minute. Pickets marched outside Dietrich's main gate carrying signs that proclaimed, Fort Dietrich is not a respectable scientific institution, and Fort Dietrich, Dietrich scientists are prostitutes. One sign asked, want to get sick? Consult your local physician at Fort Dietrich. And several signs were decorated with drawings of skulls. 
Mark Patashny, a Harvard graduate researcher, declined on the grounds that he found Dietrich's work highly repellent and did not want his name associated with Fort Dietrich. Dean Frazier, a professor of microbiology at Indiana University, balked at celebrating research conducted in an effort to develop biological weaponry. He wrote in declining his invitation, It seems at best a little like commemorating the creation of the electric chair, and at worst like celebrating the establishment of Dachau. Even some AIBS officials appealed the event. Dr. John Allen and a group of AIBS board members published a clarification notice in Science citing their principal concerns. Quote, it is not appropriate nor proper for an organization representing a large segment of the biological community to actively participate in a celebration honoring 25 years of biological and chemical warfare research. It is not proper for AIBS to lend its name and prestige to this celebration, indirectly conveying the impression that AIBS actively favors this aspect of Defense Department activity. The essential issue is a moral one. World consensus among physicians and scientists was much the same. So I might read more from this later. Um, if you guys are interested, shoot me an email, barbarian.noetics at gmail.com, and I can send you the PDF to this uh, this book, which is just becoming more relevant and important over time. And like I said, it's almost impossible to find. So I've downloaded it, and uh, as long as this PDF stays up, it's it's worth having in your, your reservoir. It's almost like a... It's written in a very conversational tone, but it's almost like a resource book in many ways. Anyways, this brings us to the end of the episode, everybody. So I just want to thank you all very much. I love you guys so much. Hey, wait, let's, let's end on a, since that's kind of heavy vibes, let's end on a slightly less heavy vibe. So I'm going to pick up this book, Das Energy, which was very kindly sent to me by a patron. There are those who say that a cell, when it is part of the body, is not an individual. It lacks the amoeba's freedom. Those who say that do not know that they and the amoeba are already inextricably part of a larger organism called life. Or perhaps they do not know that they are individuals. That organism, that creature of which we are each a part, is the biosphere, the living surface of this planet Earth. That stirring we all feel, that move toward group consciousness, is the biosphere of Earth becoming aware of its existence. It is being born. We are waking up. Hell yeah. So, I like that. On that note, on that note, I bid you all adieu. And I encourage everyone to be excellent to one another this week and be compassionate and kind and understanding towards yourself. And uh, I can really use your help to stay on the air and your help to afford groceries, everybody. So... If you would hop over to patreon.com slash noetics, I would be eternally grateful and you do receive bonus content and other perks when you sign up. You could also make a, a one-time donation at buymeacoffee.com slash noetics. So until next week, everybody, I'm sending you lots of purple vibes, star vibes, stellar vibes, sunny vibes, and positive vibes. And I hope you have an authentic week full of all the magic and nuance and bumps in the road that life always offers us and that you keep your head above water keep keep your mind optimistic looking forward and i'll talk to you next week much love everybody peace SEO.
laying on my heart just like a Casio. Breaking it apart so you can let it go. Oh, it another year that's not original. I'll send a call, alright, let's go now. Call our island. 